This is The Big Sci-Fi Podcast. The biggest, most fun podcast in the galaxy. We're Adina, Brian, Chris, and Steve, and we love talking all things science fiction. This is season four, but our human adventure is just beginning as we gather around our computer consoles to discuss the science fiction of film, television, and literature. Join us on our quest for fun and fascination as we go where no podcast has gone before. Everyone has permission to come aboard the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, but make sure to find your seat fast because we're taking off in three, two, one. Hit it. This podcast is a part of the Trek Geeks Network. Greetings, listeners of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast. Now, guys, before we begin tonight, I have a joke about podcasting. You guys ready for this? Okay. <laughs> All right. Don't give it on your day job. Right. Do we All really right. have a choice, Adina? No, you have no choice. This is what I, this is right, the intro then. I wrote today. So, okay. What did one podcaster say to the other while recording an episode about science fiction? It's me. Sorry. This is the corniest thing I've ever written. <laughs> I love it. Uh, okay. Go ahead. How about ahead. we're rocketing to the top of the charts with a truly stellar topic? Eh? Rocketing? Uh, okay. okay. Rocket, Tell me. Rocket, okay. stellar. Okay. I get the it. truth. Oh, the truth, Adina. Did Raymond write that joke? Because that sounds like a five-year-old's joke. Okay. Yes. <laughs> then yes. Then Okay. Fine. Blame yes. it on Raymond. It's his fault. <laughs> As will, a dad, yes. that's a pretty bad dad joke. It is a really bad. I'm not a dad, so I guess I can't. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's okay. Well, okay, but we're going to get a better answer today because our guest is another podcaster. Although that title seems too small for what this individual has contributed to, I'll say, the, the corpus of space knowledge and journalism. Our guest today is Matt Kaplan, who for 20 years was the host of Planetary Radio, a weekly broadcast and podcast hosted by with and with the Planetary Society. It's actually been one of my favorites to listen to since I knew podcasting was a thing. And around the end of 2022, start of 2023, he retired from the role of the host of Planetary Radio to become the senior communications advisor for the Planetary Society. Now, over the years... As the host of Planetary Radio, every week, Matt brought us space news, but also interesting interviews with science fiction authors and others that bridged science and science fiction, like Arthur C. Clarke and Kip Thorne and Andy Weir. So I'm really excited to have this opportunity and have Matt with us here today, because I've always thought of Matt as a bit of a kindred spirit, since as part of being a science communicator, he also shares a love of science fiction and sees how the two can intertwine and build off of each other. So welcome, Matt. <laughs> I am thrilled to be here. Hi, Adina. Hi, guys. Hey. Hello, Matt. Oh, hello. Thank Wonderful you for coming. to join you. Yeah. yeah. Adina, as you know, <laughs> you and I met. Um, at a space science mm -hmm. gathering of the Humans to Mars Summit uh, last May. And yep. I tried to get you on my big closing inspirational panel, but you had to run. So I did. So I'm glad, I did. To, oh, glad to have a mic uh, uh, with you now. That's awesome. Yeah, the Humans to Mars was, was a, a pretty amazing conference. And I, I was on a panel that also dovetailed the whole science and science fiction. And I got to sit there with Melissa Navia from Strange New Worlds which was uh, pretty exciting. But the whole that whole conference was just very inspiring, is what I'll say. And, and I'm, I'm looking forward for you know, to get to Mars. Melissa Navia was just great. I, mm -hmm. I interviewed her during one of the breaks there. 
uh, for, for the live stream that we were doing from the Humans to Mars Summit. And I did ask her, I think it was on camera, can we expect any more nasty lizard people in uh, this uh, season <laughs> right. of Strange New World? And she just kind of looked away and smiled. So we'll see. Yep. Yep. Yes. So you've been a Star Trek fan as well your whole life. You bet. Well, yeah, since I was 12. Mm -hmm. That's that's when I got started. Yeah. Okay, Matt, I have to ask you. Did you watch the very first episode, September the 8th, 1966? Yeah, I'm sure I did. I'm absolutely sure I did. Because I remember being so excited knowing that this show was coming to television, which was going to just put like, you know, lost in space to shame, which of course yeah. it did. <laughs> right. uh, and and I just, I was not disappointed. Um, I, I and I've been I was the same. ever since. It yeah. was the same. I was the same. When it came on and you saw what they were doing and you went, wow, this is good science fiction. This isn't Monster of the Week. This isn't Irwin <laughs> Allen giving you uh, <laughs> right. Admiral Admiral Nelson turning into a werewolf. This was, <laughs> this was smart science fiction, even though it opened with a monster. Yeah. But it was oh, a yeah, story yeah, behind the right. monster. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what made it so good. My only... My only complaint about it was I didn't you, you, there wasn't like the intro episode where we got to meet. Oh, you are Captain Kirk and you are. We just you're yeah, there. It just started. And it's like, oh, OK, I guess we know everybody. I guess we don't right. need to be introduced. And it was OK. I will it show it out okay. of order, too. So. Mm -hmm. So nerdy question. Did it like, of course, it's nerdy because it's what we do. But when you got to I think it was it episode three. That was the pilot where no one has gone before. I don't know. No remember where it came up in the first yeah. season? Because yeah, it was amazing. I was just wondering if, like, if you were confused by the, like, wait, why are the uniforms all of a sudden different? Because I know it started with Man Trap, I think. Yes, it did. And then, yeah. So then, and then, you, and you went to the second pilot that was shot, which was oh, the one you just okay. mentioned, and that was using the the sets, the uniforms, yep. everything from the original episode that was done that was bumped by uh nbc so yeah uh it, it was a little confusing but you know something i was only let's see what was i i was only uh 10 years old at the time so please okay. um it still was anything better than <laughs> than time tunnel or watching okay because like you, <laughs> you could, remember like, time tunnel man i do i don't know that's the theme uh, my friends and i in college we had a thing. It was the five warning signs of an Irwin Allen TV series. And uh, I could uh, that for another time, maybe <laughs> it, it was um, it was it was it was uh, time travel and historical stories all tied together with two characters that don't know when they're going from location to location. It's almost yep. almost like uh, the, the grandfather of Quantum Leap. That's right. Hold the Front door or whatever. Shut it's the front you. door. Shut the front door. Yeah. It's over James there. Darren was in this. Yes. Wait, James Darren was in it. James yes. Darren. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Star Trek connection. Not that there's yes. not Star Trek connections abounding there are Star Trek almost connections everywhere, everywhere, but everywhere. They're everywhere. It's it was crazy. Crazy. I'm 
I'm going to check this working out. working in the 60s as an actor. You ended up on pretty much everything. <laughs> also, I want to say real quickly to Mr. Merkin and Mr. Yes. Kaplan here. For me, Star Trek, the original series, has just always been. <laughs> there was no beginning for yeah, me. Yeah. It just mm-hmm. has always been. Because well, um, you and no I grew doubt. up with it yeah. in syndication. It was just there. Yeah, we yeah. knew everybody. Mm-hmm. Like I don't remember a light time in life when I didn't know who Spock and Kirk was. It was just mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's great. Like, just yeah. to have it be part of the culture for your entire life, you know, yeah. that's, that's, yeah. I think that's just wonderful. I, I'm, it, I, I'm honored, Matt, to have been there through all the series yeah. and all the movies. And, and it's fun chatting with these other kids. Right. These punks. Kids. Yeah. <laughs> these punks. <laughs> the, the, the only, the shows I remember having to contend with, with Next Gen in particular, was like, were like silly shows like Xeno, Princess Warrior. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Hercule, yeah. You know, other shows that were starting like to come Xena. into syndication <laughs> as that was gaining in popularity, you know. Mm-hmm. Of course, they were Sword you know, and sorcery no shows. Problem with well, those so now, shows so now, Matt, going back to the 1960s, so you've got Star Trek, and you're also in the middle of the Apollo missions as well. For you, which came first, science fiction or science, like there was space oh, exploration? There's no question. When I was very young, we had this little storefront library that my mother used to drop me off at, and it had like one bookshelf full of space books. And I told my mother, I'm going to read every one of these books. And this was, you know, I was maybe 10, 11, something like that. And um, I was making pretty good progress until a friend of mine introduced me to Robert Heinlein. Mm. And I think my first Heinlein book, one of the, you know, juveniles Mm -hmm. uh, was Have Space Suit, Will Travel. Mm -hmm. And I just was hooked right from the first page. I, 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 there was probably a year or two when I thought that Robert Heinlein was the only one who wrote this stuff called science fiction. And then I started to discover some of these other people, you know, the the classics, Asimov Mm -hmm. and Clark. And Bradbury, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and and I'm very proud to say that I got to meet and th- three of them. Uh, so who didn't you meet? Asimov. Okay. Um, yeah, but I, I saw met him, Heinlein once. Yeah, I saw him at a start at a. It was a science fiction slash Star Trek convention in New York City in 1990 or 91. It was about a year before he passed away. But back in the day, getting autographs was a little different than it is today. And so, and I was also a high school student. I was broke. So I I didn't get Asimov's autograph, but Uh, I did see him speak when I knew who he was. I was completely in awe, but like I didn't actually approach him or talk to him. I didn't, I was too, I wouldn't have known what to say. I heard you folks talking about him in the Harlan Ellison episode, Mm -hmm. which was excellent, by the way. And I, as you know, Adina, I totally agree with you about the superiority of the screenplay as shot of mm-hmm. uh, city on the edge of tomorrow of about forever um uh it was great to hear you know these things about asimov and that he was really you know in addition to being the smartest guy who ever lived you know with the possible <laughs> exception of maybe einstein or galileo um he was just a decent guy and knew how to have fun so yeah. mm-hmm. i like to say anyone who can write science fiction and limericks Ain't all bad. <laughs> I heard, loved your line. I heard that in that episode. Yeah. That was still, great. Still, T-shirt yeah. worthy. Yeah. It is. And you have you done the convention thing once or twice too? You know, I've only been to a couple of 
Well, I, yeah, yeah, I've been to Comic-Con twice. I was on a panel once and I went to Dragon Con once to pick up an award, which was mm-hmm. nice. Uh, but only two Star Trek cons. Uh, and, you know, one maybe, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago, which was the first time I met Bob Picardo uh, mm-hmm. reporting from there for Planetary Radio. And then I was at the 50th, which was okay. a, a lot of fun, which was really, really great. And I'd love to go back. I, you know, I. I had the excuse of going with work to do, which meant I, you know, got a free ticket, which was great. I got a, I got Mm -hmm. it, you know, my, my expenses covered, but I, I really have to go again sometime soon. I had such a good time and, you know, got into some of the great talks and it was really fun. Nimoy and Shatner on stage Mm -hmm. and Shatner saying something embarrassing. So. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was at the convention where Nemo and Chat were on, and they were kibitzing like two old Jews, which of course they are. They are, are yes. And then, fine. and then, Patrick Stewart stepped on stage, and it got funnier. I did that. That's, that that's must really not cool. have been my session. Yeah, he got oh, on, uh, and uh, it was. He even came on, and they just started just going on each other. It was, it was delightful. <laughs> it really. Well, we got to see if that's on YouTube. I know. Yeah. I know some of those yeah. are. Yeah. We'll God, I. I could have died right then if I'd mm-hmm. had it happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I think I've seen I've seen most of the original cast, but again, I from the original cast, I only have uh, Jimmy Doohan's autograph because again, mm-hmm. this was back a long time ago when I was you know broke and it was a whole different experience because it was really like a an autograph mill that they put you through. Like these days, when you're getting someone's autograph, you're really talking with them for a few minutes and everyone understands that that's actually kind of part of the the deal is that's really and to me that's what i'm buying it's not that i'm getting coming away with the autograph it's that experience of having like a two or three minute conversation with the person two or three minutes i didn't see i was uh i i regret my conversation with with uh Riker because i tried to keep it very short and concise hey, i love you you know blah blah blah. I was like he really doesn't want to hear you mean you mean you jonathan, jonathan frakes? frakes not Riker. Yeah. <laughs> yes jonathan frakes there... who once played Riker, yes and plays yes. him played him again yes, yes i just for the for the listeners i understand that Riker is a fictional character Played by Jonathan yes, Frakes. Yes. Are you sure? We know. <laughs> to me. My we know that. Or I prefer to say season. Riker being, no. What is it? Jonathan Frakes played by Riker. That's how mm-hmm. I like to think of it. Okay. But, you know, okay. you think of it, with after that role, what else has he done as an actor? Uh, he's done the the really creepy psychologist in Criminal Minds who was helping his oh. daughter do Criminal Minds stuff. Oh, he's really, he's he spent his time yeah. now. He's gone to directing. Yeah, he's, really, he's gone mostly directing. I was yeah. I only met him. This is weird. I interviewed him once for Planetary Radio. He was in a taxi in Japan going from one public appearance to another. And we had a great conversation. Wow. It was really fun. And it was right at the time that he had directed Thunderbirds and oh, it was, right. it was a situation. Yeah. yeah, what a shame. Uh, and <laughs> but just just a great guy. Mm-hmm. The only two people in the original series cast that I ever met were George Takei mm-hmm. and Major Barrett. Uh okay. but I did get to meet Roddenberry a couple of times. Uh and That's once sure. was when during the dark period of his life when he couldn't sell a pilot and he came to UC Irvine, where I was a student, and interviewed him for the radio station because he was making the college circuit with his reel of bloopers and the original uh, pilot. 
you know, with the, the two episode pilot turned into a basically a film with uh, Spock on being court martialed and um, had uh, he was wonderful then. And then much later met him on the set of Next Generation when we were doing a a little co collaborative thing with him for the Planetary Society. He was always a huge supporter of the society and wrote a letter, which I, I have held in my hands, uh, which he wrote to encourage people to become members. This was back in the days when we still had Carl, Carl mm -hmm. Sagan, encouraging yes. people to join the society. So it was, yeah, it was just a, a wonderful experience. Good guy. So so you were broadcasting all the way back in in college, and this this was your this has always been your career even before Planetary Radio. Yeah. So how did you go? Well, how did you get into broadcasting and then and then go in that direction? <laughs> I I did my first radio show when I was about ten years old because my parents got me this weird big blue thing that had a microphone and a Morse code key. And uh, I never learned Morse code other than SOS. But wait, I was, wait a minute, wait a minute. To get a ham license, I thought you had to learn Morse no, code. Not this anymore. Thing, really? This thing oh, probably wow. had maybe you know a I don't know a ten milliwatt AM transmitter. Okay. So I would send my little brothers out into the street with my six transistor AM That's radio, tune between a couple of stations, and I would talk to them and pretend to be on the radio. Uh, and that was the start. And then I, I did it in college at USC, which I got the hell out of because I didn't like it very much and moved <laughs> to UC Irvine and immediately uh, started working at the student run radio station there and met a lot of people who are still among my best friends today. Um, actually, until going full time at the society. Uh, and I was part-time for many, many, many years doing planetary radio. I mostly made my living doing television. Uh, running mm -hmm. television studios, public access, and oh, wow. uh, a, a studio for uh, Cal State Long Beach University in Long Beach, California, doing distance learning and cable stuff and things like that. Uh, but always, always, always had a hand in radio. I've always said, outside of family, my two favorite things in life are radio and space. And I was lucky enough to put them together. That's that's neat. So one thing, Steve, I want to tell you, and any listener who had this uh, perception about getting a ham radio license. You haven't needed a no Morse code in I think at least 30 years. And I did when, hear that. Yeah, yeah. When I was in college. So, and the reason I know this is because when I was in college, I was also part of our campus radio station. I've got stories about that, but we also had an amateur radio club and hmm. I had a ton of friends that were in the amateur radio club, but I never really got into it because I was too busy with everything else. But at one point, the the club had a experiment on the space shuttle. Mm -hmm. It was a there were these um, I think that one was a Spartan. There were two different kinds of ways you could like be students and get, you know, um, payloads on the, the shuttle. And I think one was called a gas can and one was a Spartan. I can't remember. But mm -hmm. They had this experiment. It was called Spree, the Spartan. Yes, yeah, Spartan, Spartan packet radio experiment. And they needed operators. They needed someone manning. The operations mm -hmm. center, which was, you know, on campus in our ham radio club, 24 hours. And so they were like, look, all you need is to get your license. And I was like, well, this is my, I guess this is my reason to do it, my time to do it. And yeah, there was a, a no code tech. Um, so you could, it's really easy. You have to, you have to study, you have to memorize a bunch of stuff. But again, I was already, I already knew a little bit about RF technology. So it was kind of easy, but you can well, still get that the, license today. The, the only reason why I bring that up is when I... Had my bar mitzvah when I turned 13, I told my parents what I wanted was a CB radio. 
Oh, so I, I got a so Radio bad. Shack Comstat 19 with crystals for various channels. And me and my friends, we would talk to each other over the CB radio, or we would listen in to truckers across the country on our CB radio. And believe it or not, my antenna was on the house long after I had moved out. It's still, it was still there in my parents' house. Um, so that's why we all said, oh, well, let's go into CB because you don't need a license. You don't have to get a ham license. You don't have to learn Morse code. You can just get on. But that was only, uh, only 53 ago. years ago. 53 I, years ago. I wanted a CB radio so bad. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until my parents uh, bought a used camper van that had a CB radio in it that I started listening and the one really fun thing that I did with that, because I've never missed an opportunity to do this, was I sat out with the CB radio one night calling down the aliens. <laughs> and, and they never came. They and never, I did the oh, same I'm thing s- on our college radio station, and they never came there. Right? As, so many, as so many Cowards. young men have done before. <laughs> <laughs> so you were, so the planetary radio before it was a podcast and you know everyone thinks about podcasts no one thinks about radio in fact i was trying to explain radio to my five-year-old the other day and it was not succeeding that's so sad yeah well we listen in the car we put my plug my phone in and usually music comes from my phone and so it's on demand it's whatever song he he chooses because you know Mm -hmm. he's five he gets to choose but i just decided not to plug my phone in the other day we had the radio on and we were trying to explain to him what it was you don't get to choose what you're hearing. I mean, you can choose what station, but beyond that, there's no choice. And it wasn't, we weren't really able to connect the dots for him. Was it like the not being able to choose what to listen to that was like confusing him or was it just everything well, about it? I, I don't think we successfully explained what radio is. I mean, I, when I told him you can't choose, this is a situation where you can't choose. He got over it, you know, and, and well, ask me to plug my phone in so he could choose because right now my five-year-old is into the Beastie Boys. Oh, okay. So what's on rotation? Like what, what Beastie Boys songs? Ah, uh, Sabotage, Intergalactic. Yeah, okay. Oh, the Code Spot, yeah. the classics. The yes. classics, right. The classics, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, Dina, I am pleased to report that my daughter often, when we are driving in the car, we have XM radio, uh, often request the classic radio channel where they do the old time, the shadow nose. Oh, or yeah. oh, wow. Just listening earlier today. Yeah. To, to, they'd have a ton of great shows. Um, and she, she's fully aware of what radio used to be. That's just because it's part of my culture growing up that I've brought into adulthood with me. And I like, even on Spotify, there's a station on there that has some of the classic old time radio ship programming on it. Um, so check it out. It's, it's That's awesome. Great. To, yeah. So. We just, I just, we just don't do it very often at all. I, I mm-hmm. feel bad because, you know, there's a lot of, you know, still decent content there, but so, so Matt, so before podcasting, planetary radio was an actual radio broadcast. Yep. Mm. That's where we started. We started because I knew I could bring it in there at my old college radio station because I still was in touch with those people. Mm -hmm. And from there, a few other stations heard about it and asked if we could, you know, if they could air it. And we said, of course. And this was in the time when the only way to get weekly shows out, weekly episodes out, was to burn a CD and mail it to the individual stations. Oh, oh my wow. gosh. Oh, that wasn't okay. nearly fast enough to make it practical. And uh, <laughs> so we did that. And we actually got up to something like 
I think we had 28 stations and we had to burn all wow. these things mm-hmm. every week and put them in the mail. So we couldn't wait until we could just distribute over the net. But then we thought, this seems to be going pretty well. Maybe we should, you know, talk to somebody who knows radio distribution and see if we could get on a few more stations. Maybe we get on 50 or 60. Before we knew it, we were on 130. Wow. And, wow. Unbelievable. Wow. And and uh, that surprised a lot of radio people. But, you know, if we had said we were going to charge for the show, since most of these were small, poverty-stricken stations, that would have dropped back mm-hmm. down to 20 or 30. But we... Uh, are still on, although not for much longer, maybe, on a number of major NPR affiliates, even though most of our stations are small, low-power, college-type radio stations. Mm. Uh, there has been a change just recently. Uh, the the new folks in charge, my wonderful colleague, Sarah Alamed, who you know was the person I was hoping would be able to take over the show, and she rose to the top among 300 candidates. Um it's so much work. I mean, I did it as a one-man band for 20 years, everything. Mm-hmm. And it it just, I told Sarah, don't take this on unless you get help. And they did. They hired her a part-time post-production person. But even between the two of them coming up with the, the podcast cut and the broadcast cut that had Ooh. to be 28 minutes and 50 seconds every week, oh, wow. that was just a killer. And they've decided that they're going to give up that broadcast cut. They're still going to make the podcast available to radio stations. And we've heard from several stations that want to keep running it. Uh, But we'll probably lose the big NPR stations because they just, it's just not tight enough for them. They, you know, radio broadcasting runs and lives and dies by the clock. Mm -hmm. And if they, if you have an episode that changes from week to week in length, you're probably going to lose them. But, and that hurts because I'm an old radio guy, but you know, yeah, as you said, Adina, your, your, your son wouldn't even know where to find us if we were on the radio. Right. But podcasts and, and actually my older son has listened to the, has listened to planetary radio with me because we do listen to oh. that in the car and I, you know, I, tell him thanks. Yeah. Well, he doesn't have a choice in the car because, you know, <laughs> I'm the one who gets to yeah, I'm driving. It's my car. I get to decide. Well, sometimes mm-hmm. I get to decide. <laughs> But so, and again, so for folks who don't know, if you're not listening to the Planetary Radio podcast, you absolutely should, because it's, it covers so much about what's happening in space exploration and astronomy. And I know some of the favorite episodes that I've listened to in recent years cover a lot of the exoplanet discoveries. And of course, what's happening in, you know, with space exploration going back to the moon and Artemis and all those thoughts. What's been your, some of your favorite topics to cover? God, I, I just, I'm so uncomfortable with that question. But of course, you know, you get asked. Um, it's so hard to say. My God, I, I we did over 1,100 episodes in the time that I wow. ran the show. That's and, uh, you know, there are a few people who really, really stand out. But then there were also the shows where we went on location. And location sometimes meant halfway around the world, mm-hmm. like, you know, going to Chile uh, and going up into going up to 16,500 feet for the grand opening of the Alma radio telescope array, which was just a spectacular experience with, you know, the little can of oxygen they gave me to oh my God. pass out after Yikes. five minutes up there. Uh, and, uh, you know, doing the live show that we did, Planetary Radio Live, at the Italian Space Agency headquarters and the National Air and Space Museum and the University of Toronto, 
oh, uh, which was great fun, cool. sellout crowd, mostly because the boss, our CEO, Bill Nye, you may have heard of, oh, uh, was, was also with us. Uh, and, you know, there's nothing like live in front of an audience. It's <laughs> so thrilling. Um, definitely like the Artemis One coverage uh, mm-hmm. that we did when we did not get to see a launch. Uh, but earlier than that, I mean, I never saw a shuttle launch either. I still hope to see uh, 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 an Artemis launch with people up top. Mm-hmm. Um, the one time I went to see a shuttle launch, it got scrubbed three oh, times, no. even after extending my trip. But it was still a fantastic experience. And I got to sit in Walter Cronkite's chair wow. uh, in the CBS trailer that's set up facing 39A. Uh, and that was a thrill because he's one of my great heroes. Um, yes. I always hesitate to mention the people you can maybe tell Adina I'm mm-hmm. I'm avoiding that. But I mean, you know, just heroes. I got to talk to heroes mm-hmm. every week. And that was really what it was about. Um, toward the end, getting to talk to uh Andrean, who was my guest many times. Most of you will know Carl Sagan's professional and life partner. Mm-hmm. Just the most amazing woman. Oh my God. I mean, Neil Tyson told me once, name dropping, I was talking about how wonderfully articulate and inspiring Anne is. And he said, I know. He said, and no slouch himself, right? He said, whenever she talks, he said, he just wants to sit down on the floor cross-legged and look up at her. Oh, that's so sweet. That's so, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, two, two of my, bringing two of my favorite people together, Rob Manning, the chief engineer of JPL, and Andy Weir. Mm-hmm. Two guys who knew each other, both of whom I've worked with on stages, mm-hmm. uh, and and just you know, kind of letting them go at it and throwing questions at them and giving them scenarios. Um, God, there's so many stories like that. Um, you know, people who aren't with us anymore. Philip Morrison, who was one of the inventors of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and is probably represented by one of those actors you see in Oppenheimer because he was there on on the Manhattan Project. Uh, oh man, it just it, uh, don't. I could go on and on. No, and that's that, that's amazing. Again, you know, we'll we'll post the links to where the archives, uh, you know, the shows are because there's a lot of a lot of great content for anyone there, especially even for folks who are you know listening to us and aren't as interested in real life space exploration, but interested in the science fiction and where that dovetails. There's there's a lot of episodes that mention Star Trek and a lot of episodes that we, you know, had some of our, again, you know, you mentioned Andy Weir, but I think yeah. you also talked to Arthur C. Clarke at some point a while Twice. ago. Uh, that, yeah, that's... once just, once facilitating for my then boss, Lou Friedman, but once, yes, with him in Sri Lanka. And it was, wow. he was not doing well. It was near the end wow. of his life. And so we actually had to stop the interview in the middle so that he could rest for five or 10 minutes and then call back. But, oh, my God, such enthusiasm for everything that we were talking about uh, and and just bubbling over. Just the most amazing conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, that 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 certainly was. A highlight of my life. So Uh, when you saw 2001, a bazillion years ago. Did you ever think you'd actually be talking to Arthur C. Clarke someday? <laughs> no, hell no, 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 it didn't occur to me. I did. My parents indulged me. It was my, let's see, I would have been 14 when the film premiered. And it was around the time of my birthday. And they said, what do you want to do this year? I said, I want to go see 2001 in Cinerama because that's where it was playing in Hollywood. 
and sure enough, we went up to see 2001 in Cinerama, and it was another one of the life-changing experiences. So. Did your parents enjoy it, or were they like, what what, what just happened? <laughs> I don't think... I was explaining things to them after the movie, okay. and that was just, you know, the first three-fourths of the movie, because who could explain the trip sequence at the end? Oh, you know, I'm still really. trying to figure that out. We, yeah. we, we did a whole episode mm-hmm. on 2001. It had a long discussion about the beginning and the end, and how it fit into the middle, but uh, yeah, that was that was we we had that same questions about what what, what did it say on the notes? It said it was uh, the end of the film was mostly popular popular with drug users because uh, they could kind of freak out with the end. Nineteen sixty eight, you know, yeah, <laughs> not far that from was, the Sunset Strip. Th- that was an episode too, where we had perhaps our most heated debate about a film uh, subject. Yeah. Did we or, think so? Really? Oh, yes. I, I remember it being a little bit divisive. We were divided. I, was, on I it. was on the outside looking in. I felt like, and I'm mm-hmm. still. My therapist tells me to let it go, but uh, well, you know. Clark and Kubrick, you guys probably know, they rejected a bunch of stuff that would have been more linear and more mm-hmm. rational yeah. to the human brain. They didn't want that. <laughs> and they, Can they I just say it. something real quick about 2001? If you haven't watched the movie Barbie that has just come out. I, I haven't to, watched it I'm, yet. I'm dying to. I haven't seen it yet. They do an homage to the opening of 2001 which is, might I say, one of the most brilliant bits of filmmaking I've ever seen. That's a parody. Wow. Okay. It is great. Okay. Did you just use the word brilliant in the new Br- Barbie movie in yes. the same sentence? Yes, I did. Okay. Yeah. I, I did. great things. My <laughs> daughter's a wonderful little video. film. It's it's fun to watch. It's a it's a fun cool. movie. But cool. the opening cool. was like, okay, there. This is great satire, and you'll we, you'll know when you see it. Okay, we made a movie. I'm sorry. I just, this is so (laughs) thrilling. We made a movie about our college radio station in Super 8. Oh, really? Yes. And the opening to the movie was the history of our radio station. And the first sequence was the dawn of radio. (laughs) And we had a guy uh, who was sitting in the desert in a leisure suit, uh, listening to a record or something. And he looks to the side and we had a giant, not a monolith, but a giant, 45 rpm record and he goes over and is obviously hugely influenced by it and throws a radio up in the air and we see it spinning and then it turns into a turntable with a record of 2001 soundtrack going round and round that's, that's so genius. pretty cool that is genius I, okay so i want to know how you did that i haven't seen it like we i'd love to see it but also like how did you do the was that hard to capture it the was throwing part. It was that sounds it like was miserable. Brutal. Yeah, and just being in the desert, we had <laughs> we had built one fourth of a giant forty five RPM uh, record, and that was what we had out in the desert as prop. Wow, that <laughs> is called commitment day. to your vision. <laughs> Showbiz. So what was on the label of your record? Was it? Uh... I think it might have been the soundtrack. I, you okay, know that's really cool. Oh no, Very wait good. a minute! I take it back. It was. Um, it was Sugar Sugar by the Archies oh. because that was the first song ever played on KUCI. My college oh, really? really? That's not a that's, that's no, true. that's not a good legacy. That's is, no, it's not. Is, no, that's <laughs> not. Is that better or worse than Africa? Or your oh other no, Africa's great. Oh, I sugar, think Africa's sugar great. is so bubblegum. Yeah, uh, you actually will break a tooth ch- listening to it. It's so bubblegum. Oh my <laughs> god! Check it out after. And bubblegum mm. is an old expression to what music was 
like that in the yeah. early 70s. Yeah, that yeah. was the era. Yeah. Uh, I love, yeah. can can I interject here? I just, I love, Matt, you're, you had, I love life stories and journeys and what that looks like and taking kind of a, you know, 500 foot up approach and looking down and seeing how it all comes together. And uh, it's, to me, it's really inspiring that as a young kid, you had some dreams you were inspired, mm-hmm. and when the opportunity, opportunity came, you stepped into those opportunities and just kept working hard and plugging away and doing your best to where now you're where you're at now, and you've had you've brushed shoulders with some people known worldwide, and uh, that's just amazing. Um, have is there? I say all that to ask you this question. Is there someone yet you have not had the opportunity to talk with, meet, um, do a radio program with that you would love to if the opportunity arose? Yeah, there are still people, of course, that I would love to talk with. And I discover new people almost every week. Mm. And, you know, I hopefully will continue to have a forum to be able to speak to them. At least within our member community, we have a, a wonderful fairly new still online member community at the planetary society which we uh the live events we do in there are are uh, proving to be very popular um and hopefully now and then still in planetary radio the two people who most come to mind i'll never get to the chance to talk to uh because one was neil armstrong uh who you know of course was notoriously difficult to get an interview with uh, <laughs> although an affable guy apparently uh you know if you were on a cruise with him or something um and carl sagan okay. and i i was actually in the same room as carl when in the summer of 1976 when the viking one lander was coming down on mars and i was st- <laughs> this will knock your socks off I was a college radio reporter, scruffy reporter with a couple of my buddies. We had wangled our way into Von Karman Auditorium at JPL saying we were the largest public radio station in Orange County, California. We didn't tell them that that meant it was a 10-watt station. <laughs> uh, but but mm. there we were with our cassette recorders, and we find ourselves standing in a circle with Ray Bradbury, First time I met him, I, I would go on to interview him about 15, 20 times. Uh, Theodore Sturgeon. Oh, my gosh. A bunch of other people that I don't remember. Uh, and uh, and we're standing there as Viking is coming down on Mars. And uh, we see Carl Sagan across the room. And we saw somebody who was working with him. And we said, oh, excuse me would Dr. Sagan be available to us for even five minutes and we could talk to him on the, uh, for our college radio station. And the guy said, Oh, let me check. And he walks over to Carl and Carl is talking to the guy and he looks up at us and he looks back to this guy and shakes his head. No, which I totally get. I even told Andrew in this last fall because, you know, he was in demand by CBS and ABC and, you know, we were scruffy college radio people. Mm-hmm. So I totally get it. And that was my one shot. I told Anne last fall I, that I had these two people that I wished I'd always been able to talk to, Neil and Carl. And she said, oh, she said, I'm so sorry. She said, but I'm I know that Carl would have loved talking with you. Aww. That's okay. got to be a really nice thing to <laughs> hear. I, that was it. That was it. 
So, um, yeah, but those are the two, you know, people I will never have the opportunity to talk with. I did Mm. see Neil Armstrong speak. And because he was notorious for not doing these things, it was in 1996 or seven, Mm -hmm. he was speaking at the University of Richmond. And so me and a few of my, I was in college, I was in college at the University of Maryland at the time. And because it was such a rare thing, we got in the car and we drove down to Richmond because, oh, gosh, darn, we were not going to miss that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's, you know, one one of the things about um, Neil Armstrong was he was a Star Trek fan himself. And if you've really? not seen it, they're, they're on YouTube. It's when they had a tribute in 2004 for uh, Scotty. And he came out there and he spoke. And I mean, he he was like saying, boy, if I could have a crew, it would be the crew of the Enterprise. And this is the first man who walked on the moon. And Mm -hmm. he was saying how he's so impressed of the Star Trek actors and characters. Mm -hmm. He was a humble. You know, the thing I always like to say about Neil, Neil Armstrong, him and Sandy Koufax. Mm. are two of the best that ever did what they did and they never seek the limelight they never demanded the attention they just knew what they had done and that was all there was to it and they were they're that great can i tell you one other story of humility mm-hmm. not mine of course that same day when viking one was landing on mars uh i'm standing in this circle with these other no- notable people and somebody comes up to us and says Heinlein's here. Heinlein's here. He's in the cafeteria. And it's like, you know, here you are with Theodore Sturgeon and Ray Bradbury, and they're saying, oh, Heinlein's here. And Ray Bradbury says, oh, my God, I don't know if he's talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) Did did they have a disagreement sometime? (laughs) Apparently, Bradbury said something that maybe offended Heinlein. I don't know what. Uh, but, but he just wondered if, you know, Heinlein would, you know, be, would be talking to him. Wow. That was, that was also what gave me the ability to go upstairs and bug Heinlein during, while he was sitting with friends in this cafeteria or restaurant and ask if I could talk to him for a minute. I was so overwhelmed. Sure. And but I, I think I asked him, Mr. Heinlein, do you think we'll ever reach the stars? And he said, well, Probably not the stars. They're much too hot. <laughs> <laughs> but if you mean the planets that are probably going around them, yes. Mm-hmm. Nice. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. That's how I felt when I met Robin Curtis at Trek Long Island. I was oh, just beside hey, myself. Hey. I was just beside myself and I just was a total idiot. But that's we don't need to rehash that again. Yep. I know the feeling. I'm <laughs> usually pretty cool, but I have my days where I'm not. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so one person that I did meet recently at Shore Leave, and it's really fascinating that he's a board member of the Planetary Society, is I did meet Robert Picardo. He was at Shore Leave earlier this summer. Um, Shore Leave was a weird experience this summer because it was the the hotel that it was that was hosting it, their air conditioning wasn't working. So I Ooh. think everyone was in a little bit of like, I know I was like dying. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but no, but he was, uh, it was great. And he, we talked for a minute on Friday and I told, it was a, the weekend after the 4th of July, he asked me, and I told him I was a member of the Planetary Society. And he asked me if I had seen the video that him and Bill Nye had done on the 4th of July, 
and where they're wearing like twin shirts and they were like, you know, kind of razzing on each other for wearing the same shirt. And I said, I did see it. And he's like, should I wear that shirt tomorrow? And I'm like, yes, you absolutely should. So the second day, my selfie with Picardo is with him in that shirt. <laughs> That's great. That's fun. He's he was, a great uh, guy. He he seemed like really friendly when I met him last year at Vegas at the Star Trek Vegas. Yeah, he was super friendly. He was chatty. It was like, oh, this is like he's very genuine. He is so funny. How did he get involved in the Planetary Society? Oh, uh, he was introduced in part. Oh God, I hope I get this right. Uh, do you know who Andre Barbanis, who uh, Andre yes, science advisor to Star Trek for many years, became a oh, producer okay. of oh, Enterprise? Um, I, I, well, Matt, Adina sent us the link for your interview with him. He was on several times from because I, I love Andre. But this is from right at the end of yeah. Enterprise when Enterprise dropped. That was a remarkable. Oh, episode. thank you, and, thank you. Uh, yes, and and I imagine you guys agree that boy, that show was really undervalued at the time. And second half uh, of that third I, it was season, so good. I, I forgot they to were, wear my NX01 so hat. Perfect. I should have put that on for you. But uh, yeah. Didn't you love how NX01 came up in the recent uh, SNW? Oh, wasn't my that goodness. a nice thing? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it was. Uh, it was. Per- I was really hoping they were going to be like, we have to go to a museum. But <laughs> but see, that's, did not see you know, that. that's that's the beauty. You know, th- that's where this show is so good. And Strange New Worlds It's they have they they have this relevance for what was before it and you know and it's really really well done and the same thing again for the fourth season of enterprise andre did a you know him and and manny who poor manny coda is no longer with us um did a great job in honoring the the star yeah. trek legacy and i said third season i meant fourth season i'm sorry i've just had my sure. star trek yeah. stripes yeah. Removed. oh okay i'm yeah. also a big um, fan of the yeah. third season I was with you. I was yeah. like, let's give some. The we third we just went on love. a tangent. Sorry about that. Let's get back. <laughs> uh, yep. He, he is wonderful. He, I think was introduced by Andre who used to be on our advisory board uh, and really took to this. Uh, Bob has a biology background. He thought he would be a biologist until he got bit by the uh, acting bug. You should have him on your show sometime. Uh, and uh, and it's, he's just great amazing. fun. He is so funny to work with. We would love to have him on if, the show. Could, yes, we would. The if, doctor if you wants could, to come uh, on the show. Send a, a little, uh, hey, Bob, if you don't mind, you got a, you got a free Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> hey, That'd be great. I'm sure I could put in a um, word for you. Um, thank you. Well, actually, you know something? He, since I did this, you know, Facebook always likes ties in with everything you've ever Googled. And now I getting mm-hmm. commercials on Facebook for the Planetary Good. Society. <laughs> And Bob is one of and Bob is See? one of the guys who's doing yeah. the commercial, yeah, to promote the planetary he's society. He's really devoted to us. He is a total believer in the society and in our mission. Uh, which, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, basically everybody there. It's just an amazing group of people, mostly about half my age, and um, um, it, it's pretty wonderful to work at a place that has a mission that is so much a part of your own belief system and soul and uh bob just fits right in and he's a very active board member and yeah you'll you'll continue to hear him a lot in our videos and in other uh, promos for the show anybody see him i think this was at the 50th anniversary vegas con on stage with and i'm going to forget his name forgive me the guy who played neelix oh i uh ethan phillips yes thank you 
they were wonderful together. They did this whole bit that they had scripted in character as if it was years later and Neelix was talking from somewhere else in the other quadrant and, and the doctor was, you know, on earth, I guess. And uh, there was this wonderful bit they did. And Picardo sang opera, which he did get to do once in the series. Uh, and uh, it was just, it was marvelous. Very funny people. Great. That's great. Thanks. Um, I'm going to ask you this question, Matt. Um, you mentioned Neil Armstrong. Have you are interviewed astronauts on your show? And do you, is there anyone that stand out? Because but, but Adina was very generous and able to get us to interview uh, Rick. And I'll, I'll ne never say his name. Mestranio? Oh, he's fantastic. Mestr yeah. Mestranio. Mestranio. Yeah, he was a lot of fun. Yeah. So Rick, Rick is right now. He's essentially my boss. <laughs> so he wow. was, you know. Um, so but, again, I was able to ask him. He was a. Uh, able to you know he's great come on and for and, me and it was like when i you when i when i look back and here's a guy who was on three shuttle missions one soyuz mission mm -hmm. multiple sp sp spacewalks i was like you know like wow you're you're moving like you know yep. someone that's done things that we all dream about and so What's the best thing is I, I work with not just one astronaut, but two, and they're just, their personalities are so very different. So Rick was on the show and if anyone listened to the episode, they'll get a sense mm -hmm. of his personality. And we did a little mm -hmm. video clip with the other guy, Dan Tani, and who, and they're very different personalities. And the other day I was coming into work and I, actually, I don't go into the office often, but when I do, um, I see these guys there and they were having some discussion in the little kitchenette that turned into a discussion about the toilets on oh, the goodness. ISS. And you've got these two different personalities having like, you know, one guy, I won't tell you which one, um, kind of went into how they had all the problems with the toilets and how pretty much he spent a lot of time, you know, working on the toilets. He probably could have like you know, brought his sleeping bag and camped out by it. And the other guy, I I, I can't tell if he was being polite or not, but he was, didn't <sighs> want to talk about any problems with the toilets. He said, no, we, we didn't have any issues. I, 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 I think he might have been I'm being get, polite. I'm getting a vibe of who. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I know which it, one it, was it, being polite. It's, yeah. Listen to these guys you know, for a minute not, and you know who, it's, who, who's It's who, not it glorious. It's, it's awesome. Or it's not glorious, as General Martok would say from Deep Space Nine. But... <laughs> It's very necessary to make sure that toilet yeah. is functioning yeah. for these mm -hmm. men and women as they go up. That would You're... suck it, to not have it, that working it's, properly. It's not only that. It, what's really amazing is the amount of time and effort that we need to put into making sure that the astronauts mm -hmm. are not yeah. wasting mm -hmm. their That's, time on maintenance mm -hmm. tasks. Oh, you know, it's point. a very big deal yeah. to send these people up there. It, so, uh, you know, so we wind up talking about a lot of really mundane stuff more than anyone would ever believe. And we Have talk about heard this line? a lot, too. Uh, do you know what happens <laughs> if your toilet breaks on the way to Mars? Everybody dies. <laughs> because it's going to be such an essential portion of the recycling that must take place. Yeah. Because you can't yeah. bring every, all the water with you. Mm. Uh, and, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. um, yep. very early... Okay, even I'm today, sorry, oh, I was going to say, I mean, even today, something like 98% of the of, of the water is reclaimed yeah. and reused to include, yep. yeah. you know, yeah. urine on the space station, yep. which Drink means up. that's what people are drinking. And mm -hmm. on the surface, it sounds kind of no. gross, but that stuff is probably like a thousand times purer yeah. than what's yeah. coming out yeah. of anyone's tap. No, I was, I was going <laughs> to say, Matt, um, the going back to the series Enterprise, what 
when I was watching it, what sold me was a very early episode where they get questions from children from an elementary school. And of course, the big question they ask is, how do you go to the bathroom on the Enterprise? And there's where Trip goes, now I'm a sanitation engineer. Yeah. But it it was was so true because when I was a kid growing up and we watched the Mercury and Gemini and Apollo missions, the question we always said was, how do you go to the bathroom in space? Because we knew how we went on Earth. And that was like the question that we had to every know the astronaut. Yeah. Every astronaut. I this have... book, this is the youth version of all oh, my cameras fuzzing it out on purpose. It's okay. Okay. That's packing for Mars. The kids version for Mars for by kids. Mary Roach. Oh, cool. She's oh, going. We're featuring mm-hmm. this book next month, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, next month we're featuring this, and we'll cap it with a an interview with Mary Roach, which who, by the way. I probably had as much fun with as I've ever had doing an interview with anyone because she is hilarious, as are mm. her books. And of course, there's nice. you know a whole chapter on going to the bathroom in here. So, yep, yeah. So I, I got a whole lecture sometime last year when I started working on pot, you know potty related stuff on how the Apollo astronauts did it. I, yeah. I know too much. You don't want to know. I just know too much. I, I, you asked me about astronauts. <laughs> um, I, I've lost count of how many I've been able to talk to. Really. Yeah. Um, and and I'm terrible. This I will admit this terrible, terrible deficiency in my brain for the job that I have. I'm horrible at names. Mm. Um, but uh, uh, my I, I did want to mention Mike Massimino. I wanted to mention John mm-hmm. Grunsfeld, the Hubble repairman, mm-hmm. because he's the newest member of our mm-hmm. board at the Planetary Society. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. Samantha Christopheretti. Uh, from yes, uh, she's a big Star Trek yeah, fan. She's huge. Well, she, she, oh the, yeah, she wore a uniform on in the, the uh, ISS. In and, the oh, yes, yeah. yes. She is just the sweetest person. Um, and the whole crop of astronauts nowadays, you know, they still have the right stuff, but they're also mm-hmm. just the nicest people in the world. Why? Because they were chosen to be nice people and get along with each other mm-hmm. while they're living in this yeah. tin can for you know a year at a time. And and it 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 works. It works. Yep. Yep. I think it was in Chris Hadfield's autobiography where he talked about the selection criteria for you know back in the Apollo and or even shuttle when it was a short duration mission versus a selection criteria exactly. for the long duration stuff. And what's really interesting is so we talked about this with the Okudas a couple months ago, the show for all mankind on Apple TV. So. I'm not completely caught up. I'm only like the end of uh, the second season. But what's really interesting is in the show, they do have, you know, basically Mercury, Apollo astronauts doing the longer duration stuff. And it doesn't necessarily go well. And it's like mm. the, the, the biggest, you know, <laughs> as close to a spoiler as I'll get. And it to me, it, it really helps prove the point of you need the right selection for the right, you know, You've given the me right job. Like- Oh, look, a baby wolf. Uh, two of those. Because you said Okuda. Do you want my two con related Okuda yes. stories? Definitely. Okay. Sure. Oh, yeah, sure. It was the first con I went to. And Mike and I have known each other for a long time. And oh, wow. this was the con where they were selling off a whole bunch of the props and beautiful oh, stuff. The, the Christie auction? Yes. And this was like the preview yeah, for the Christie cool. auction. And so Mike was there mm-hmm. and I'm interviewing him. And next to us was a certain flute, which you may remember from Next Generation. Right? Oh, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So uh, <laughs> I said to him at the end of the interview, I said, 
you know, shouldn't Patrick Stewart get that? And he said, well, he's welcome to bid on it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> the other story is is I like even more. This was at the 50th anniversary. Mike and I were walking the halls. And I had seen a guy earlier. Maybe you'll know this guy. Maybe he probably is at every con. He is Roger C. Carmel as Mud, Harry Mud. And okay. it's amazing. The guy looks the part. He just physically and perfect, perfect outfit, perfect cosplay. And I had talked to him the day before because I was just so blown away. And I, 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 when walking with Mike, and I say to Mike, "Oh, Mike, Mike," because we see the guy across the hall. You've got to meet this guy. And so we go over there, and uh, I we're standing and we're starting to talk to him. And the first thing the guy says was, "Why do I owe you money?" Uh, he's totally in character. And I said to him, I said, so do you know who Michael Kuda is? And he said, of course I know who Michael Kuda is. And I just point to Mike. And the guy does this huge take and falls on the floor, uh, and, which made Mike feel pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's pretty cool. We, we are right. Fenton Mud. Where have you been? What have you been up to? The third. Oh. Yes. Yes. Well, we, we did it. We did an interview yes. with Mike and Denise. Oh, that's great. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and they were just wonderful oh, people. Fantastic. Um, and, and I, in that I interviewed, I explained, I met them at Disneyland of all wow. places at when they were having dinner and I had to interrupt them to say, I'm the only Star Trek fan here who knows who you folks are, <laughs> but it was a pleasure to meet them. Play. And, um, you know, these are, these are the people. Them and our good friend of also the show, Doug Drexler. Um, these are the people that made Star Trek. I, I'd include Rick Stern, Sternbach, mm-hmm. Sternbach, who yeah. I have one of his prints in back mm-hmm. of me here. Dolphins going on a starship out to meet Voyager 1 or 2 and, mm-hmm. you know, for a little archaeological oh, wow. mission. Dolphins in spacesuits. Uh, yeah, you're right. Denise and Mike, they are, mm-hmm. they are the keepers of the flame. Yeah. Yeah, and they and, rebuilt the Enterprise D, yeah. and we could have talked to them about it because it hadn't aired yet. <laughs> oh, that's right! That's so yes. cool, yeah. and yeah. it's like one of the coolest. And also, ever. speaking of yeah. speaking of flutes, that's true. We interviewed Margot Rose, uh, who played Aline yes. Picard's wife in the episode oh. "The Inner Light," and she yeah. was delightful to have on the show. Yeah, that was a really uh, good. Adina, episode. Did you meet the guy who wrote the script, uh, "Inner Light" script? He was at the Humans to Mars Summit that mm. you and I were both attending. He, no, he spoke I don't in think one session that. and then he was signing scripts. And I did get him for one of my break interviews uh, for the live stream that we were doing there. I know. I really oh, don't think I oh. knew that at all. I wish I, I wish mm. I had, I would have absolutely loved to, to chat with him. But when we talked to, to Margot Rose, um, it's kind of funny because a few months ago, she was also mm. auctioning off some memorabilia from, from that episode. And I bid on an item uh, one of the items she was auctioning off was the pendant mm, oh, wow. that she was wearing, the pendant of the probe that she was wearing. And I didn't win. The next morning on, so there's for, for anyone who's listening, who's a, on Facebook and is a Star Trek fan, if you're not part of the Star Trek family group, you really should be. It's an amazing mm-hmm. community. Well, so in the Star Trek family group the next morning, um, they were talking about uh, donating to PanCan. It's a pancreatic cancer association that Jonathan Frakes and Armin Shitter- hmm. Shimmerman and Kitty Swink, they're all um, they're all part of raising money and, and very, very deeply involved in that organization. 
So I was thinking to myself, I was like, well, you know, I was willing to spend this money on a piece of memorabilia. Oh. I might as well donate it to PanCan. And especially pancreatic cancer has me touched too. my life too. And it's something I, I, I do care about. So I'm like, let me just donate that. Well, um, I didn't think about winning any prizes or doing anything. I was just like, let me just donate. And a couple of weeks later, uh, apparently my donation, I, I won a Zoom oh, talk. that's with wonderful. How perfect. Mm -hmm. And and so I, so I got to talk to him Riker? for for a bit uh, a couple weeks ago. <laughs> Riker. <laughs> no, I mean Jonathan. I know. <laughs> for the record, I understand. <laughs> Riker is not yeah, a real person. You know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Confirming. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and no, and it was great. So it's it's just uh, amazing, just the whole circleness of the community. There's a lot of philanthropy that mm -hmm. goes on, and um, just just so much interesting stuff that's all part of. You know, the shows that we love and which kind of inspires mm -hmm. real life, which inspires mm -hmm. the shows. And so there's one other thing I really want to bring up, especially about the Planetary Society, is one of, you know, um, oh. it's the light sail mission. Oh, And we should probably yes. actually explain to the folks who don't know the Planetary Society sure. what the overall mission is. And it isn't just a bunch of people just who like space. There's actual tangible yep. stuff that yeah. the society does. Right from the start. And um, yep. I mean, and solar sailing has been a big, big part of this for all three of our founders, Carl Sagan, Lou Friedman, our, our executive director emeritus, who's still with us, and the great Bruce Murray, who was the director of JPL and left in part because he and Carl and Lou decided to start the society in 1980. and. Um, you know, they started the society because even though there were things happening in 80, Voyager, Viking were still on Mars. Um, there was this this famine, this this drought in planetary science missions. And they said, we know the public believes in space science. They believe in planetary science and exploration. And we need to give them uh, an avenue for expressing that and supporting that. And so that was when, you know, Carl started going on the Johnny Carson show, the Tonight Show, which he was already kind of a regular on, and talking about the Planetary Society. And, um, you know, we we grew very quickly after that because they discovered, yep, there are a lot of space fans out there. It's a whole new, if you'll pardon, new or next generation of people running the society now. Uh, and as I've said, it's it's just the most amazing group. The mission and the vision have stayed pretty much the same. The vision is know the cosmos and our place within it. The mission is empower the world's citizens to advance space science and exploration. And and the core enterprises, the three of them, yeah, I, I'll be tested on this by ma our management if I don't get it right. <laughs> Explore worlds, find life. And defend mm. Earth in terms of planetary defense, you know, defending us from those rocks out there that may have our names on them, which I don't know if you saw this, but there was just a release of a new Pew Research oh. uh, survey. And they gave a whole bunch of things that could be done, can be done, are being done in space. And the very top one was planetary defense uh, with, with space science mm -hmm. not too far behind. Um, mm -hmm. So we have always uh, supported the work of uh as we can a small nonprofit with our shoemaker neo grants near earth object grants that we've given out mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of dollars to amateur so-called amateur astronomers and smaller professional observatories uh supporting this work to find and characterize and track near earth objects um and we have a new program called step 
which is actually funding other kinds of science. Uh, a SETI program was one of the first things that we uh, funded. Really cool thing out of UCLA. Um, but then there was LightSail, which was our own project. And we've had a number of other projects that we put together on our own. But LightSail was easily the most, the highest um, profile. Carl and Lou Friedman, Lou Friedman wrote the book on solar sailing, literally wrote the textbook. And Carl was always a big believer. He actually brought a model of a solar sail on the Johnny Carson show once. Uh, and it was realizing a dream. Um, we would have had the very first solar sail ever in space, but we made the mistake of uh, accepting, you know, the, the, that they were telling us the truth when a Russian company said that their repurposed Russian ICBM uh, would make it into space. It didn't twice. And so our our early solar sail, Cosmos One, went into the drink. But we then started redesigning it as a CubeSat with a lot of great support from outside people. And eventually, we put the thing in orbit. We we had LightSail 1, which was really just a test mission, was only up for a few weeks, uh, but did deploy. And that taught us a lot. And we put LightSail 2 up. And anybody who wants to see its enormous success can go to planetary.org, where we have all these beautiful images taken by LightSail 2 under the direction of my good friend. He's on my coffee cup, Bruce Betts, our chief scientist, and my uh, former partner in the uh, WhatsApp segment of Planetary Radio. Uh, and it really inspired so many people, um, this idea of having a spacecraft that could actually be propelled through space purely by the energy of photons. Some people think it's the solar wind. It's not. It's just the light of the sun. And you guys know that there's a great tie-in to Star Trek and light sailing. Mm -hmm. Are you thinking of... Uh, DS9. Why am I doing the spinning thing? Yeah, yeah DS9. Yeah. Uh, Cisco and his son going it. out on that old yeah. Bajoran uh, solar sail, right? Yeah, pretty mm -hmm. cool. Uh, pretty I think cool. it's called Explorers. That episode's called Ex yes, yes, Explorers. Right. Yeah. It's one of my favorite Deep Space that's Nine two. episodes. Wow, two you're points. on today. That's Ethan. Now, of course, they, they went a little further into the science fiction-y yeah. aspect of it, because I think they achieved you know warp mm -hmm. speed with the, their wish. solar sail, which is not what we're doing in reality. <laughs> what What is yep. the yep. speed that it's able to obtain? Well, that's the that's thing. Uh, as Lou Friedman will happily tell you, he uh -huh. believes that solar sails are the only practical existing technology for interstellar travel. And we may be not talking not so much about a solar sail, although there are proposals for sails that could fly incredibly close to the sun and get a gigantic push by the sunlight. Um, uh, and that that would be enough to take them to the stars within a human lifetime. But of course, there's also a lot of discuss discussion of laser propelled sails. Um, huh. And uh, this is something that has actually some of the initial research is well underway with this. There are huge technological um, hurdles to overcome, but you could theoretically drive a sail with just even a few minutes of its early portion of its mission up to something like, let's say, a third of the speed of light wow. so that wow. you might be able to uh, tenth cool. of the speed of light so that you could reach, you know, Proxima Centauri in something like 40 years. 
Um, so still a long time, but it's an awfully long ways away. So a long time, but it's a lot Hell shorter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, and so the research continues, else, yes. but even for missions within the solar system, uh, and maybe just outside, Lou would like to send a solar sail telescope, uh, a telescope carried by a solar sail out to a point where you could use gravitational lensing of our own star, the sun to resolve perhaps revealing surface characteristics of an exoplanet using gravitational Einstein's gravitational lensing and our own star. Uh, There's no reason why gravitational lensing. Amazing, amazing stuff. So is the planetary society funding research? We are not in in that that specific area, area? but we sure support it. I mean, people often ask Mm -hmm. us, well, when are you going to do light sail three? No, what we did was prove Mm -hmm. the concept and that it could even be done for next to nothing by a small nonprofit, totally with pup support from our members and other members of the public. Uh, it's up to other people to do light sail three. That's so fascinating. Okay. It's amazing. You can tell I, I like love this. I get passionate about it. <laughs> oh, you, my gosh. Give like a very like, if you can, a 30 second explanation of gravitational lensing, because that sounds like one of the coolest things ever. <laughs> yeah, like I know. Why don't you put Kip Thorne on the show and he'll explain it to you. Well, you okay. know, I'm, uh, gravitational lensing was actually predicted by Einstein because, you know, general theory of relativity, uh, mass bends space. And because light has to travel through space, light is also bent by a big enough mass or any mass really if you have instruments sensitive enough to measure it so the idea is and there was just a story about this today that uh some people use the jwst james Webb space telescope and a far distant galactic cluster to do gravitational lending lensing to bend light of an object much much farther away than that galactic cluster mm-hmm. bend that light around the cluster and it would reach the JWST and it's really difficult it's not like you can put your you know your camera up to the eyepiece of the JWST and there's this thing that maybe is i i forget how far it is i don't even know if i read that yet that's maybe 14 or 13 or 12 billion light years away, you know, back toward the beginning of the universe. But using uh, uh, all kinds of great computer stuff and algorithms, you can resolve this object, which we would never be able to see. It's much too far away and much too dim to be able to see it without Mm -hmm. gravitational lensing. So that's basically it. It's, you know, once again, proof that Einstein was right on the ball. Speaking about the, the James Webb Space Telescope, have you seen the Netflix documentary, Unknown Cosmic Time Machine? I just saw the trailer. Nope. I'm like, I'm scrolling. I'm like, it, a documentary it is unbelievable. It is, the, it is the entire story of the James Webb telescope. Did they talk about yes, they did. Like they sure enough I was on the did. other side yes, of they the did. glass. They also talked about that. The, but the thing that was the biggest story about it was the zero-sum errors they talked about. Like, there are a certain number of errors that can happen that can basically sabotage or destroy the entire mission. That was 350 Ooh. different That's scenarios insane. or little <laughs> things that could happen that would have destined the James Webb telescope to disaster. And it is amazing that they got through it all and the devotion so, that these people made were oh remarkable. Goodness, yeah. And, 
I, but now what people should understand is like that stuff is normal for like every satellite. Well, we, we put but up people there. don't know about like, this. We, we go through that. No, for, people like, don't everything. know about it. that's why it was so good that they did explain it. And so that so what you're talking about with the 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 errors is a, we call that failure modes effects and criticality okay, analysis. That's not the term they and use. That's a you that you they used a similar term time. like yeah. zero sum that in the chat. So okay. we we say Famica. So so uh-huh. we, we abbreviate it as Famica, but failure mode okay. effects and criticality, criticality. analysis. Which that is, that's what you do is you look at you look at all the things that can go wrong and what could cause them and what effects that they would have and certain things mm-hmm. you you try to design mm-hmm. around if you can or you operate around it or you just at least acknowledge <laughs> acknowledge it and put it into your reliability calculation. This is what I do on a day to day basis. So <laughs> I made the comparison. When I was at Northrop Grumman and I visited the JWST, which I have to tell you, mm-hmm. it's like the Grand Canyon. Photos can't mm-hmm. capture it. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it is really the size mm-hmm. of a bus. <laughs> but I, I use the comparison to uh, Seven Minutes of Terror as Curiosity and Perseverance came mm-hmm. down to Mars. Oh, gosh, except yes. Except <laughs> that you poor people mm-hmm. behind JWST had like, what was the deployment mm-hmm. schedule? Six months of terror or something like yes, that? Yes, <laughs> of all these different things that could go wrong. Yeah, so I didn't, I didn't, unfortunately, I didn't get to personally work on it because I came to Northrop Grumman through an acquisition. My company, um, we were, we used to be oh, known yeah, as Orbital sure. Sciences and we're, we're known for sending stuff to Cygnus the cargo to the International Space Station is one launch. of the things we're known for. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just last night. Yep. That's my, that was, that is what I'm related Very to. Cool. That's my, my teams. So the other part of the company, Northrop, they're the ones that built uh, James Webb. But um, like, I have colleagues, like one of my colleagues, she was responsible for like the mechanisms, like all the, the moving mechanisms. There's like 300 something mechanisms. And she was yes. responsible for like 10 years. Of her you life, have to watch the movie. Maybe that mechanisms. she's interviewed and in because they yeah. did talk to someone, a young lady who was, who was it, involved in that and how she had to coordinate all those things. You know, it, I wouldn't be surprised because she's someone who actually mm-hmm. gets yeah. you know public facing attention like that. So I'm I'm now no, I'm really motivated. I want to go see it's if, uh, my colleagues. Yeah. yeah, I need to do that. I started no. the RoboCop docu or was watching <laughs> movies that made us. I was watching RoboCop, did Arnold, Wham. So now I think after that I'll do the. This is really amazing. That and you know, unknown. Uh, a good friend of mine. But sometimes people get. I'm going to say no. A good oh, friend of mine. Go ahead. He was actually worked for the company that placed Webb on the spacecraft. Oh. He was gone in French Guiana for months as they mm-hmm. were planning out how to do it and executing that. And I would just thought, like, yeah, what if he dropped it? You know, oh, I mean, just these are the these are the the things that were all potential failures that could have just you know mm-hmm. destined decades of work, billions of dollars, and it all worked. And that's the amazing yeah. thing. I have a, I got a JWST story that goes back years and years and years. Several of us were visiting north of Grumman in Hawthorne, and uh, there was the bus, just the bare bus starting to come together. And in another room were seamstresses, women who were expert seamstresses, sitting beginning to sew the solar shield. You know, that Mm multi-layer shield that allows JWST Mm -hmm. to do the infrared work it does, to keep it cool. And it was so, it blew me away to see these highly skilled women sewing together this thing, which their work, their stitches are now out there mm. doing some of the most amazing astronomy in the history of the field. 
And, and they cover that in the movie. Oh, do they? That's and they great. Cover, yes, they oh, do. Nice. Uh, yeah, and the fact that there was what, five now. layers that they I had to build. Something like I think it all had to deploy correctly. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. Adina, I, I figured that you, you know, don't get much sleep because <laughs> every mm-hmm. little component, little bits and pieces, mm-hmm. they, they even talked about how they hadn't put these correct fasteners. And they had to take them all apart and put them all back that. together because it would have meant disaster for the mission if it vibrated itself to yeah. pieces. It's yeah. Yeah. So this is, I mean, the reason the way we sleep at night is because really, I'm going to say, you know, we've got decades of experience doing this. So we have a lot of processes and things in place. We know mm-hmm. what to do. So like it, we know a thousand things can go wrong. So we know kind of like the steps mm-hmm. that we take to look into preventing it or to correcting mm-hmm. issues. Uh, you know, there's a lot of testing mm-hmm. involved where we work things out and we know mm-hmm. all this. And that gives what gives us the confidence that when we launch it, it's going to be fine. And I know the missions that I've worked on in my career, um, there's been very little problems on mm-hmm. orbit. Uh, I've I've lost one of the missions I worked on early in my career, you know, also went into the, went into the drink. There was a launch failure. But in terms of once we get on orbit, um, things yeah, work pretty yeah. darn well. And my hat's <laughs> off to say you. It. But that's because of mm-hmm. all this engineering, yeah. everything that goes into these. And, you know, congrats on the great success of uh, of Cygnus, of that vehicle. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. So, yeah. So for people who don't know, so Cygnus is one of the vehicles that resupplies the International Space Station. So we send up fresh food. We send up science experiments. We send up other things they need. And so it births with the space station and the astronauts get all the stuff they they need. And then Cygnus is like a trash can afterwards Mm. and all the trash goes in there. And then a couple months later, it, you know. Let's go from the space station and burns yeah. up in the atmosphere, and that's how one of the key ways to get rid of trash because that's another big right. issue. That's is dealing with trash management. I've never like heard it, of that process. You know, what do we do? Oh yeah, yeah. And and here's another thing they do. Yeah. Sometimes once Cygnus has done its job at the ISS and it departs the station, mm-hmm. you light a fire inside the capsule. Sapphire. <laughs> yeah, right. And so how often? So what? Don't so, go away, wait, so wait. So explain it. Explain so one that, of the neat Lucy, things, Lucy, explain yeah. it, please. Mm-hmm. So one of the neat things about our Cygnus vehicle is, in addition to carrying cargo to and carrying trash away, it also has the capability to do other kinds of experiments. So there have been several Cygnus missions where we we have some other experiment happening, and in one case, um, I think I want to say that the payload was called right. Sapphire, but the idea was is we we set a fire in to see how fire behaves in oh my zero gosh. g. You know, fire doesn't behave in in zero gravity and microgravity. It doesn't behave in the one six gravity on the moon that it mm. does here. What we're used to in one G. And while there have been fires in space, they are with when people were there. So they're right. short lived. The goal right. is to get it out, not <laughs> study not it. it. <laughs> you know, but we need to oh. study it in order to understand how that's to mitigate something that happens. That's immensely. Oh my goodness! Wow. I love my job. I love what, you know, this is, you know, I get very excited we talking should. about space and what we do and you know, all of this know, being fellas, motivated by sorry. Star Trek and sorry, science Dean, fiction. I'm talking and, I think I know where you're going with this. Folks, folks, folks. I feel like folks, I agree folks, folks. Steve, Brian. Brian, and Chris, we need to have Adina on as a guest. We- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Well, I'll be a guest. That, that's why I called these episodes the big sci fact 
podcast because oh, we talk facts. Even though it is science fiction, mm-hmm. the the amazing thing is that science fiction does become fact because it either drives mm-hmm. dreamers who decide that they want to do something special with their lives and Lo and behold, it happens, and and we get to see it every day. I mean, I, I Matt, you and I were lucky. We we watched, you know. I mean, I my first birthday was on October fourth, nineteen fifty seven. So there was Sputnik wow. Day, and it's oh, I'm I never had the chops to do what Adina says it does. Excuse me. Yeah, me neither. But it doesn't mean I don't appreciate right. it and love it and admire the successes and abilities of other people. And I'll let you know, Matt, I drive a car that's powered by the same thing that took us to the moon. You have I've a fuel the, cell car? I have a, I have a Toyota oh, Mirai. Wow. And every day I drive that car and I, I say, this is the same thing. So what, what sticker is on my car? Power 11 sticker. Because... <laughs> It's the fuel cell that took them then to the moon. They couldn't do it with batteries. And I just, to me, it's like I'm driving science every day. And it's a, it's a, I'm proud to do it. I'm so proud to have that. We're using science right now. Yeah. I mean, the fact that we are spread out yeah. on the continent mm-hmm. and having this live conversation. All at the same know, again, time. This is science. You know this is technology. Because, As our boss yeah, says, because yes. science rules. Yeah, and science rules. And where did the mm-hmm. internet come from? It was a way of transmitting information among scientists to share information. <clears throat> they did a whole episode of Young Sheldon about it too, which is kind of fun. Yeah, <laughs> but this was this was all envisioned in yeah, science fiction right. long before mm-hmm. this became reality. You know, and that that's why this is and, and, and it so works amazing. the other way, of course. Somebody comes up with something interesting, mm-hmm. and a science fiction writer says, "Ooh, right. I can work with that." Yeah, right. what, yeah, if, yeah. what if I'm a yeah. push that as far as we can go, exactly. and so on. Exactly. It's a it's yeah. a wonderful cycle. So, with that, you know, Matt, what upcoming either real life space exploration stuff or science fiction are you most excited oh, about like, over the next year um, or so? You know, some yeah. of it's not even, some of it is just stuff that is not like thrilling, but we have to deal with this. I mean, priorities mm-hmm. for the Planetary Society. We are deeply involved right now in trying to save the Veritas mission, which is one of two missions that mm-hmm. NASA approved to go to Venus. Uh, yeah. The other one is Da Vinci, which is going to study the atmosphere. That one's still on track. But when an asteroid mission called Psyche got in trouble, NASA canceled Veritas. And this is such an important mission, and we are really pushing this. And I'm very excited about it because, uh, you know, the best radar images we have of Venus, this will be 20 times better, 20 times higher resolution. And Venus has so much to teach us about our own planet. Uh, you know, why did they get a runaway greenhouse effect on Venus? And how could we avoid that happening here? That's just one bit of it. Um, so that's a big deal. And I'm really glad that we're a part of that. I am certainly looking forward to Artemis, uh, to uh, Artemis mm-hmm. 2 and and seeing people yeah. go around the moon and to Artemis 3 and putting people back down on the moon. And I do think it's going to be really important to put people on the moon and learn how to do stuff there when they're two and a half days mm-hmm. away, mm-hmm. rather than going straight to Mars. But hey, you know, Elon, go for it. Yeah, whatever. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's just fine. You get Starship Elon working is. properly, and I will be cheering the, you on. 
Um, does does he know that Starship looks remarkably like Rocket Ship XM from the movie <laughs> from the 1950s? I, they didn't have a good ending to their mission. No. I can make that. I think he may have some mm. idea. I mean, after all, the whole idea of these these ships that he's building now with Starship they they really do look like those fifties spaceships that they do. Some it, of us grew <laughs> up with. Um, I know. Yeah, it's. But there's there's so much else going on. All the stuff that's coming from JWST, like today as we speak, today's announcement about this object and the exoplanet work that is being done. Um, you know, I have high hopes that JWST is going to outperform what was predicted regarding exoplanets. It's mm-hmm. just possible that JWST is going to give us spectrographic evidence of what could be life. Um, Mars sample return. Um, that yeah. has to, and that's in jeopardy too, because it's been much more expensive than expected. Getting those samples back to Earth, as wonderful as Curiosity and Perseverance have been. Curiosity, mm-hmm. my God, what a sophisticated lab for a robot to carry in its belly. But nothing compared to what we can do here on Earth. We need those bits of the red planet back here in our best labs so that we can look for those little evidence of little critters that maybe have been dead for billions of years. Maybe not. Maybe they learned how to adapt. Future missions? Dragonfly. Uh, I just, oh, my God. Oh, my God. That one. What's Dragonfly? Uh, That sounds cool. an An octocopter on Titan. An octa, a drone on Titan, a nuclear powered drone flying around Titan, maybe coming down on the edge of some methane sea and and telling us what's going on in this Mm. incredibly alien environment that in so many ways is actually a lot in some ways more like Earth than Mars is, even though it's how how does that compare with the with the copter that's on mars how it make a, i know there's different gravitational requirements yeah. and atmospheric requirements but are were they using the technology that they developed for i could i can tell you that the people behind ingenuity the little copter on mars mm-hmm. they are in close contact with the dragonfly people who are at apl the applied physics lab at john hopkins mm-hmm. university because after all There've only been there's only been one flying machine on another planet so far. I know that's uh, amazing. But in many and the ways, photos it took, Dragonfly yeah. will have an easier time of it because Titan has such a thick atmosphere. Uh, okay. But so it'll be more be able to cre- create the aerodynamics, be able to have a f- top to wow. Yeah, it's oh, it's just yeah. Read up on Dragonfly, and and as you know, Titan is I, like my favorite. I didn't. I'm not body surprised, but in the. Well, well, as these guys might know, well, Titan is my favorite one in the in the solar system. It's where it's not really a setting yes. in my novel, but it's sort of a set. It's where my main character wants to go to because in the novel there is mm-hmm. a group of people on Titan. So that's it's it really is my favorite place in the solar system besides besides Earth. Where we because, live. It's how the Bill Nye says everybody are, so. I know who lives here. Yeah. Um <laughs> Dina, I right. should have worn my surf Titan tight uh, t-shirt. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Nice, nice. But yeah, so I've been following Dragonfly closely, and I will be following that one for mm-hmm. like, yeah. There, there was a moment where I was almost like, ah, are oh, they wow. hiring? But uh, I'm, I'm sticking with yeah, it. Yeah, you're <laughs> in a good place. Wow. Yep. See, yeah, there, there's so much good stuff to look forward to. It's very exciting. What about science fiction? What science fiction are you looking forward to? Okay, what's coming up? Well, the next episode we got a of musical. Uh, sorry. 
that's the Sorry, next episode, a right? Tomorrow, as we tomorrow speak, morning. tomorrow. I'm a little freaked mm-hmm. out. I was mm-hmm. like, "What crossover <laughs> from Below Decks?" I don't know. And then I saw the episode, oh. and I thought, you know what? That really works. I enjoyed yeah, they, that. Was, they and, and, it. and you know who directed that? It. You know who directed uh, it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Only Johnny can do it. He's got the sense of humor for that. <laughs> it was. It was great. Well, so yes, we've got a couple more episodes of Strange New Worlds mm-hmm. in this season. Uh, we have Lower mm-hmm. Decks coming out like, starting the next season of Lower Decks uh, in September. Yeah, then and we, hopefully Section Thirty One will happen. Right? It's hopefully, do we have oh, Disco in, in October or is that yeah next? I don't know is when, it, but it's going to happen. I, I didn't even know. Yeah. No, it's, it's I'm, been I think filmed. It's, yeah, so. It's been filmed and done. It's just a matter of, I, I think they've, because of the strike, I think they've changed up their release mm-hmm. schedule a little bit, but it's, mm-hmm. it's been done as far as I understand it for, for a while. But what about, do you watch and get into any other sci-fi besides Star Trek, such as like Star Wars? Like I'm all the different fan. Star Wars I'm series. a fan. Of course there is mm-hmm. uh, any rational person knows that Trek is far superior. Uh <laughs> Great. Really? We <laughs> never right. had that discussion about that. Yeah, you'll get show. the mail this time, not me. Um, no. <laughs> I, I, yes, I, I heard you guys talking about the silo the other day. And oh, yeah, my yeah. only beef with the silo, I, I do like silo. it a lot. I, unfortunately, I do think it was about three hours of television rattling around in a what, 12 hour or 10 hour box because it moved awfully slowly but i did enjoy it a lot and i love the finish of that i i look forward to the second season it's not exactly mm-hmm. science fiction and it is on hold because of the strike but i'm looking forward to the film of the story of how the thing that you guys can see behind me the golden record the voyager golden record how that came mm-hmm. to be with people playing Andrewian and carl sagan mm-hmm. Yes, Which, I saw that about that. that. When is that supposed to come oh, out? Oh, God knows, because of the strike. It is on hold. Oh, okay. Uh, but but it, thing they've that's... cast it, and okay. uh, Anne's very happy. She's involved. And so that's mm-hmm. definitely something I'm looking forward to. Um, gosh, what else is coming that I, I ought to be excited about? Um, I the, the second part to Dune. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, Dune part two. I, 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 I'm enjoying that Foundation, second season mm-hmm. Foundation. I can't wait for the uh, continuation of Dune. Uh, I think they're finally getting it right, mm-hmm. although I was a fan of the first film uh, before <laughs> it got, you know, screwed up, before they messed it around with it. Uh, I actually thought that that was a pretty noble attempt to capture Dune, mm. considering the times, the time in which it was made. But mm-hmm. yeah, I can't wait for that. Cool. Can I ask you this, Matt? What as a kid, what science fiction did you watch other than Star Trek? Huh. Was there anything else that just made you, like I say, I, I started watching science fiction when I could reach the on-off knob on my TV set when I was a kid. So is there was there one thing that that you got you excited about science fiction? Oh, I was already excited about science That uh-huh. you know, That goes back to that time when my friend introduced yeah. me to Heinlein. So I was deep yeah. into it. But some of the shows that you've mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Erwin Allen, you know, we we used to call it the voyage to see what's on the bottom. Uh, this <laughs> <Yes>. big, impossible <laughs> submarine. Um, Lost in Space, which just was corny as hell. But it was, yes, you know, it at was. least they were The first season was very good. In black and white, the first season You're right. it was, was good. You're absolutely right. But they actually we, tried. We had the... Mm-hmm. 
we had the honor of interviewing Jamie Anderson, the son of Jerry Anderson, the creator of Thunderbirds. Oh, and for me, Thunderbirds. when I was a kid, it was watching Supercar. Uh, that, me too. In elementary school, okay, see? I had buddies. We would sit on a bench during the lunch break in elementary school and pretend to be flying Supercar. <laughs> yeah. Fireball that's, XL, that's the show. Fireball XL5. And mm-hmm. then Thunderbirds, which outdid yeah. everything. Yeah. And that was, and as I said, it was science fiction that was for kids, but we could, it was also interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was, it was a, it was a real honor to interview, to interview Jamie. He was uh, his son. And yeah. I will also give, that you know, uh, some time, some recognition to Twilight Zone, of course. Your, your praise for Rod Serling, mm-hmm. extremely well deserved, but also mm-hmm. Outer Limits. Which oh. you also talk about. Yes. See, you guys can probably yeah, just sit I know, and I you know, talk well, about I, okay, your, the, your childhood. The thing is, no, 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 no. Matt, no, you and I have good. a little bit of in common. That sounds we both like have, it. Yeah. We both have two grown-up daughters, and we both have a grandson. You live, happen to live in San Diego. My daughter lives in Poway. Oh, not far. Yeah, right up the not road. far away. My daughter is in Scripps Ranch, neighbor to Poway. But, my daughter w- worked at Scripps Ranch in their archival department when she was going to UC San Diego. Well, we'll tell mm-hmm. them to watch for each other at uh, Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> what is Scripps we Ranch? We need a separate Zoom room for Matt and Steve now. So we'll, we'll uh, have extra. Uh, <laughs> this is Don't why I was us. so looking forward to this. I was so looking forward to this interview with you, Matt, because, I mean, you, you you've interviewed amazing people and we are you are too only in the your shadow of who we are interviewing much like you're interviewing you and other people which makes this this show so good you just have to stick around for 20 years (laughs) we're gonna we can, there's there's so oh, much to definitely. talk about. We are we, never going to I might be 86 when it happens, but I'm still going to do that's it. Okay, I'm still going to okay. love science fiction. That's and who okay. knows what great science fiction we'll be watching in the next 20 years. Live long and prosper. Well, so with that, everyone, I'm going to say that it's about time to wrap up mm-hmm. this conversation. But first, by tipping our astronaut helmets to our special guest, Matt Kaplan. Thank you so much for for doing this with us tonight. This has been great. Please join us. We need your help. We need your support at the Planetary Society. And even if you don't join, though I hope you will, I'm a member, uh, we have so much great stuff on our website and our other channels, planetary.org. And uh, Bill and I will send you a personal thank you. No, that's not true. <laughs> but but he'd be happy to if it were practical. Right. right. You're going to send me a personal thank you because I'm going to be signing up tomorrow because oh, I'm a member of Aaron Space Museum. This is the kind of thing to be involved in. And one of the neat things uh, about the Planetary Society today is the online community that they have, which is kind of is a really neat. And there are discussions that involve like, a book club discussion and what's happening in space exploration in the night sky. And it's a really nice, positive community. So absolutely, you know, I'm a member. You'll see me there too. Thank you very much. (laughs) Great. Well, and so to our wonderful and amazing listeners, remember that we're not just podcasters. We're people too, who like to interact and chat with y'all. So join our Facebook group or find us on Instagram or Twitter, or you could always drop us a note at the big sci-fi podcast at gmail.com. And I need to give a big cosmic salute to the Trek Geeks podcast network. We're proud to be a part of the Trek Geeks network. And in addition to the big sci-fi podcast, you can find some really cool and other entertaining podcasts at trekgeeks.com. 
So until our signals get crossed again, keep those phasers on fun. Oh, this, is, this is a new one. <laughs> That's your best I like, I like this, Adina. I love this. Yeah. good. Okay, finish oh, it up. A, Take us home. Excellent. You have a warped cool. sense of humor, Adina. <laughs> well, oh. Hey, that's pretty good. I like it. I like excellent, it. Excellent. Excellent. Perfect. So everybody, treat each other kindly and live long and prosper until the next episode of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast. Thank you.